preservation of food has been a problem for man from the very beginning. Because few foods could be preserved and primitive methods caused important vitamins to be lost, no one ever had a balanced diet, three squares a day, the year round. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Luckily, humans now have all sorts of ways to keep food for the lean days. We're rarely in the same situation as our ancient ancestors. If food was plentiful, they ate. If not, if the fruits or vegetables were out of season or the hunting bad, they did without. But today, few of us know how to preserve our own food. So this week, we're taking a deep dive into the world of DIY food preservation. We'll visit with some home canners who preserve everything from salty venison to sweet peaches. And we'll hear from an expert who learned canning from elders in her own family, and now studies how canning has become its own art form. But first, Lilia Fukin takes us to a community cannery filled with commercial canning equipment, so families can preserve their food in enormous batches, saving hours and days of time working in a steamy kitchen. Inside the cannery, the high-pressure steam, fans, and heavy equipment make it hard to have cozy conversations, but Lilia managed to get some good-hearted canners to yell into her microphone with their stories. It used to be that every county in Virginia had its own community cannery. Today, there are ten. One of them sits in Prince Edward County, and I stopped in for a visit. The cannery is bustling with activity, and I follow the intoxicating aroma of cinnamon and apples to find a family making apple butter. We've been coming to the cannery for about 40 years at least. This is Lonette. She's here with her husband, J.H., and their son, Justin. They're like a well-oiled machine, carefully measuring ingredients and stirring in these giant kettles. uh, Yeah, we started with his grandmother, and... We've been coming ever since, and now our children are coming. Uh, they have children themselves, so they're finding out the importance of doing their own <laughs> canning and providing things for the family. Not only is this a multi-generational family tradition, but like many of the cannery's customers, when they come here, they'll can hundreds of quarts of food. And they come in here pretty often. Yeah, all through the summer, um, string beans, um, yeah, we did cabbage, tomatoes, two batches of stew, um, black-eyed peas, um, squash, um, salsa, salsa yeah, spaghetti sauce. We do that. This family grows and processes much of the food they eat, and they're able to do it in large part because of this community cannery. A farmer and canner in her 20s, Michelle McKenzie, takes a break from canning her greens to explain how this all works. The home canning season is about to end for the season. It ends around Christmas, but it'll pick up again next year in June. There is a $1 per day fee to utilize the cannery for canning, and then you pay for the cost of your cans. So it's an incredibly affordable service. Everyone in the cannery seems so happy. Patty Gulick, the home canning manager on site, has a theory. Everyone's always happy. You know, they're, they're making a product that makes them happy. You know, who isn't happy around food? It's a, ha- it's a happy place, so it's, a, it's the best job in the world. Absolutely. Next stop, a private home two hours north in Albemarle County. Got some apple jelly. I'm not much of a jelly jam, but, you know, people come over and you have breakfast and stuff, and here's some raspberry peach that I made. This is Dr. Lenny Sorensen, and we're in the kitchen at her homestead in the mountains. The now-retired African-American research historian for Monticello teaches home provisioning when she's not working her small farm. Her pantry is glorious, with rows upon rows of shiny glass mason jars filled with everything from canned peaches to pork. Um, <gasps> oh my goodness! <laughs> okay, so this, this is the big dog, as they say. opened up these giant covered doors and it's just beautiful well, in here. My wonderful husband built all of these cabinets. Oh I my you know. goodness. Mine, they are his work. So I have a lot of peach jam. We have 19 quarts of um, venison and 14 pints of canned venison. And then there's uh, lard and chicken fat, and then venison stock, uh, canned pork, again, great for enchiladas and tacos and stew. 
There's some beef, again, for, um, you know, like cottage pie or tacos. Or uh, You can tell we, we eat a lot of tacos. I love tacos. <laughs> I mean, that's a wonderful way to put food together. With new materials and new technologies, the world of canning is evolving. And this is a good thing, Sorensen says. People haven't been canning that long, so we are still making tradition. We're going to be working on a food tradition instead of just kind of, well, that's how they did it 80 years ago. But one thing remains the same, and that's the feeling folks get when they're putting up their own food. When I grow it, raise it, butcher it, it feels, and this is totally subjective, it feels like free food. I know that I had to buy the seeds. I know I had to buy the hog feed. I know I had to buy the equipment and the cans and the jars and the, all the stuff. I know that. But it feels like free food. And that, because I was really poor as a kid and went through some periods of being very, very hungry, is still a gas to me. It still feels like free food. Now we're getting out of the kitchen and into the archive. Danielle Christensen is a professor of religion and culture at Virginia Tech. Her expertise is folklore, and she's been examining the history and culture of home canning. Danielle, you argue that home canning, even 100 years ago, was more than just trying to keep the family in food over the winter. People took pride in it, loved it, had artistry about it. Yeah, I think, you know, canning is definitely, it's been a really important part of the economics of families over the years, but there's always been a component of uh, performance, display, of um, beauty in in terms of taste and in terms of the visual presentation of jars of really beautiful bottled fruits and vegetables on shelves. People have uh, for years actually sort of taken people down into their basements uh, to to display these things to their friends and their neighbors. And so it's never just been about the food that you can eat when you don't have anything else. Did you or your mother or grandmother have such a pantry? So I grew up in central Ohio and in suburban central Ohio, but our family had a food storage room in the basement, sort of a closet that we would keep stocked with um, things like bottled applesauce and peaches and tomatoes, some, you know, fruit leather that my that we would make and I would take to school and all my friends would think, that is crazy. What are you eating? Um, yeah. And we would also, uh, my my father's mother, my grandma Christensen, would, uh, when they would come to visit us from Utah, they would bring a car full of different kinds of things that grandma and grandpa had canned, grown in the garden and canned. And by canning, we mean jars. Uh, Usually, in the United States, usually when people talk about canning or home canning in particular, they mean bottled foods. Although in the early parts of the 20th century, there were a lot of people who also canned foods at home using tabletop crimpers in tin cans. But glass has always been, it lends itself to the kind of display that people are interested in with canning. Um, A lot of people, times people will just uh, create two or three jars that are specially made for the fair or, you know, for presenting as gifts. It's so interesting you mentioned the fair. People would can and win prizes at the fair or enter to win, right? Exactly. Yeah, all over the country in, you know, small town fairs, county fairs, state fairs. Um, there were girls involved in canning clubs at the turn of the century um, in which they would uh, be able to go to national conferences to to show off their, their wares to earn money. So I think if I saw a bunch of jars filled with canned food, so to speak, I wouldn't know one from the other. But do you think your practiced eye would say, oh, that is great? 
Yes. Even <laughs> even visually. So you, you can tell if people have packed them at the correct ripeness, right? If they're falling apart, sort of fuzzy along the edges, they're probably too ripe when they were packed. Maybe they were overcooked. You can tell sometimes people will layer things if they're doing sort of a mixed a soup mix, right? You can you can layer different uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, there have been combinations that people have used uh, like peas and carrots or tomatoes and corn have been canned together a lot, not only because they're beautiful, but because the acid from the tomatoes has helped to preserve the corn. So in a lot of things, you can see a pattern where there's both a functional purpose, but also an aesthetic one. What's the most exquisite example of this you ever saw? You know what? I I still think the most beautiful thing to see is a quart jar of Alberta peaches that are just glowing in the light. I'm biased because uh, my own family has produced peaches in the past um, because I've done a lot of them myself. So I'm sort of familiar with that. And because I know how different they taste than the peaches that you might buy in a can in the store. Why did your family do so much canning in suburban Ohio? Did you have a big garden? We did have a big garden. Uh, we grew everything from strawberries to grapes to Swiss chard, which none of the kids liked, but we grew it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had uh, string beans. We had carrots, uh, potatoes. We had several pear trees, several peach trees, several apple trees, and an apricot tree that every year the squirrels would strip of the apricots right before they got ripe. Um, but my parents grew up in the West, and so apricots for them were uh, sort of the taste of summer. And so we tried to grow one in Ohio. Isn't it funny that we've gone from a culture where we loved and depended on this kind of canned food to people that just don't get it? You know, I think that there's actually in the last 10 years or so, there's been a huge upsurge in the people who are interested in learning how to can. And so when people talk about canning as a dying art, I just have to say that is, <laughs> it's not true, right? Um, practices change over the years, but but they haven't died. Um, there's been a lot of workshops that have been created to teach people how to can who maybe didn't learn in their own families. And a lot of that is coming out of um, people with an interest in sort of knowing where their food comes from, having control over what they are feeding their families. Um, the increase in community-supported agriculture, so CSA subscriptions, and also farmers markets that give people access to fresh um, produce has really gotten people thinking about, well, now that I have all this delicious food, what do I do with it? Being more aware of seasonality and um, having access in the season and wanting to preserve that for other times has gotten people thinking more about processes like canning and freezing. I'm charmed by a woman you write about named Addie Mae Dotson. Tell me about Addie, where and when she lived, what her life was like, and her canning prowess. So Addie Mae Dotson and her husband, Lewis lived on a small land holding in Norman, Mississippi. And in the late 1960s, early 1970s, some field workers from the Center for Southern Folklore in Memphis, Tennessee, visited the Dotsons. Mr. Dotson played guitar. He, he played the bottle. And they met Addie Mae Dotson as she was coming up the road from a shopping trip in 1973. What'd you buy today? I bought a pound, about a pound and a half of meat and some sugar and a five pounds of meal and some jaw tops. That's what I got today. Jaw tops? Mm. Peaches. Cane peaches. She bought a little bit of meat, feed for her hogs, um, meal for the chickens, and then some sugar and also lids for her jars. Addie Mae Dotson grew up on a plantation in Mississippi. Uh, she didn't have a lot of resources in her own family. She had had to drop out of school so her siblings could go to school. And you can hear from this clip how proud she is of being um, able to, to live 
productively outside the cash economy. So she only has to buy um, so the meal and feed that will keep her animals alive, right? A little bit of meat for the family. But then the other thing that she buys are sugar and candy lids so that she can sort of parlay those things into food for her family based on the things that she's grown. So she had a garden. Um, she was also able to, to trade things with her neighbors and was really proud of the ability to turn all of those uh, seasonally available things into foods that her family and her friends could enjoy. And you might think that, you know, that she only can because she had to, right? But she also is very clear that she loves to can, that she loves the process. And I want to play you a, a clip of her speaking about this. Well, I love the cane. That's all I want to do to find some to cane. I can stay in the kitchen from morning to night, cane. If I can find some to cane and have the jaws and the top, good tops and leaves. I love the cane. What do you cane? I have cane, some peaches, cane, some blackberries, two jars, three jars of butter beans, and four jars of snap beans, and put up some jelly. That's about all in black bees. How often do you can things? Well, whenever the season comes. See, just like peaches now, these started getting ripe. And I caned them. And uh, when black bear season was, okay, I picked them. I came me a few of them. And like butter beans now, it's few. I give me a few. I came me a few of them. And I got a little corn patch back at the house there when my roasting jet gets full. Well, came me some of them. I, I love this. I mean, she loves to can. She lives for it. She loves to can. And one of the reasons that she loved it so much is because she was she had a very developed ethic about how she should treat her family and her community and her neighbors. And so it was really important to her that she have an, an excess food to, to share. She wants to be able to have enough in her larder that when people come, they'll feel not only satisfied physically, but that they'll have the pleasure of eating those things that are lovely and tasty and that have her own care and work put into them. Was she unusual? Did you come across many people in your research and your activities who loved canning the way she does? Definitely. And people would always be clear that canning involves a lot of work, right? That it was very important to the ways that their household ran, um, that they had to rely on a lot of support from other people to produce the food and the labor sort of to make that possible. But so many of them were uh, just pleased with that sense of security that come what may, they had the skills and the resources that would allow them to deal with those circumstances in a way that brought joy into their lives. When did canning begin? That is a complicated question. Um, canning as we know it really took off in the United States um, after the Civil War. Um, and so a lot of that has to do with, you know, was the the equipment in the jars available, right? But people have been preserving fruits and vegetables in sugar and in vinegar for a long time. You know, as far as you can go back in the 14th and 15th century, right? And indigenous peoples here were preserving fruits and um, berries with honey. Why is sugar a preservative? Sugar and vinegar both help to in inhibit the growth of microorganisms. I have to bring up, how dangerous is it to do canning improperly? Have there been periods where people have died or contracted botulism, that kind of thing? Uh, so botulism is a uh, a real threat in canning, um, but I think it's an over-exaggerated threat. I think that people, if you are, you know, following accepted procedures, you're using the right equipment, then it's not something to be afraid of. But how do you know who has and who hasn't? Well, I think if you are, are giving home canned products as gifts— there's a lot of trust involved in accepting those gifts. Usually things like um, jams and 
um, preserves and pickles are acidic or sugary enough that that inhibits the organism that causes botulism, which is a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. So there, there is definitely specific knowledge that's important if you're going to be canning, but um, you know, there's the, the Center for National Home Food Preservation at the University of Georgia has all the up-to-date information that can set canners on the right path. When you started looking into this seriously, you found so many wonderful recipes and surprising recipes. Tell me about, for instance, all the recipes for mango canning. So uh, if you might think if you see a recipe for mango pickles that uh, people are pickling the kinds of mangoes that are, you know, yellow and delicious and that you might uh, get imported from Mexico. Uh, in fact, uh, recipes for mango pickles go all the way back uh, at least until the late uh, 1600s. Um, they grow out of uh, British imperialism and experience in India. Uh, and uh, But people who are trying to, to replicate these mango pickles that often had a, that were stuffed with with peppers and other kinds of spices and then put in vinegar, right? They were trying to replicate these and used all kinds of, of other kinds of fruits, melons, uh, green tomatoes, uh, green peppers, peaches. And what you do is you uh, take out a, a part of the fruit so that you're able to scoop out the inside. Then you stuff it with uh, spices like um, ginger and cayenne and turmeric and uh, mustard and also maybe some chopped peach or some chopped melon, right? You stuff it in there. Um, uh, before that, you've sort of brined the the melon or the the the, the peach for a while, you stuff it with these uh, spices, and then sometimes they would actually sew the piece back in, or you could sort of take uh, twine and wrap it up like it was a present, right? And then you uh, pickle it in a, a spicy um, uh, vinegar, um, and then eat them with meats or other kinds of things. And you can find these all throughout 18th and 19th century cookbooks um, in the United States and elsewhere. And in fact, when I was going to graduate school in Indiana, people of a certain generation would refer to bell peppers as mangoes, right? Even when they weren't sort of pickled. So you can see the reverberations of this this recipe of British intervention in India rippling out through the British Isles and the United States. You also came across canned sausages. That fascinates me. I did. And that used to be a really, really common recipe throughout the United States. And it grows out of home hog production and killing. So when hogs were butchered, people would spend all day in the, the kitchen. And part of that work would be grinding up the meat, seasoning it, and then they would form it into balls or into patties and fry it up part way, um, probably three quarters of the way done, and then pack it into jars and pour the hot lard over the jars. You can see in the 1920s, a number of candy manuals in the United States include this recipe in the manual. So when you took the sausage out of these jars, you would fry it up again. And they said it tasted so much fresher than sausage that had been cured. But something that shows up in these interviews is that you can't do it this way anymore because the weather has gotten too unpredictable, the winters aren't cold enough, or that, that winters are so variable that you can't count on the weather, and these aren't particularly in, in Appalachian interviews that I've been looking at, but you can't count on winters to be cold enough to preserve this food without it, it going rancid. What's another recipe that delights you? Um, a recipe for my own family that people think is a little bit strange is carrot pudding. And this is something that my grandmother used to make. It's a steamed pudding. It's, it's a, especially a cake, so it, more in the tradition of um, a plum pudding. Um, her grandparents were English, and uh, she created this, this— well, she didn't create this recipe, but it was one that was actually circulating in the 1930s as sort of a thrift recipe as well. It's got shredded carrots shredded um, potatoes. It's got raisins and then um, spices, um, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, right? It's steamed in the jar. Then it's pressure canned because it is a low acid food. Um, and then if you can get it out of the jar afterward, you put a sort of a citrus uh, cream sauce on it. And actually when my grandmother went into a, a care home, 
in about the year 2000, we found a number of jars of carrot pudding that, that were still on her shelves, canned in 1982. And my dad actually had us try some. And it was it was a little bit dry, but as a testament to her canning skills, it was uh, still good. And, um, and that was really meaningful to him because when they lived in northern Montana and the growing season was really short, that was something that they would enjoy um, at Christmas time based on the foods they'd grown in their garden. It is an emotional thing, isn't it? The, the associations we have with the food our loved ones prepare mm-hmm. and love and that we have eaten and shared. I still actually have one of those cans of carrot pudding from 1982 on my my shelf. I'm not planning to open it anytime soon, but it reminds me of the the care that she and my grandpa put not only into gardening, but also into preserving these and sharing them then with their their family and friends. Are people nowadays, young people, canning gifts for the holidays? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, You know, I've received delicious chutneys, and I have made, say, a a blueberry lemon marmalade, or I foraged last summer and put together elderberries and blackberries and muscadine grape juice Mm. in a really delicious jelly. And so there, there are tons of great cookbooks out there that will teach people not only how to can, but the sort of logic behind canning. Do you love seeing the resurgence in interest now? I am just fascinated by the way things stay the same. You know, one thing that's really been striking as I've looked into archival documents and old manuals and old diaries is that the continuities are often more apparent than the differences. And so I think we often think of the past as a place where people were much different than we were, right? That they they only preserved things because they had to, and, you know, they are living these terrible lives of drudgery. And it is hard work. It is still hard work to produce food and people and communities, right? Um, And I think that a lot of the concerns that people have now, people have been struggling with for generations. And so looking at the ways people have approached canning helps me think about what have we learned how to deal with, learn how to solve, and what are the challenges that we're still sort of wrestling with. Well, Daniil Christensen, thank you for sharing this with me today on With Good Reason. It's been a pleasure. Daniil Christensen is a professor of religion and culture at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Craft beer has been on the rise with local pubs popping up coast to coast. It's certainly been happening in our local community of Charlottesville, Virginia. I spoke recently with Hunter Smith and Levi Duncan of Champion Brewing Company, which has become a popular downtown destination. Hunter and Levi met in a craft brewing course at Piedmont Virginia Community College, where they both now teach. 
Hunter, how did you become interested in beer in the first place? Uh, by by virtue of drinking it. Uh, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to put it to put it succinctly, uh, one of my best friends. Uh, we would come home summers uh, between college years, and his dad was really into craft beer. And this was, you know, I guess ten years ago. It wasn't what it is now. And every now and then, one would slide towards us, and we went, "Oh my God, this is not what we're drinking." Um, we saw the light. Levi, you. I came into craft beer by the uh, same way as everybody else. I was a young man drinking yellow beer, and then I found my gateway, which was uh, kind of like dark beers, stouts, porters, things like that. And then it uh, it kind of grew from there. Before you decided to join forces and create your own brewery, had you tried any on your own in the closet? Oh, well, I, I homebrewed and Hunter did also. So I homebrewed for about a decade. And what did that entail? A big plastic bucket? Uh, in the beginning, yes, yes, yeah. certainly did. Uh, after a while, it became uh, stainless steel vessels and and uh, you know far more uh, intricate setup. I had temperature controlled fermentations by rigging refrigerators with temperature controllers, and the homebrew hobby can be um, as much or as little as you want it to be. And I never got that far. I did it for three or four years, but mostly out of Gatorade coolers. Uh, and it wasn't until I made something that I thought was close to commercially acceptable that I thought, hey, this might be for real. Describe your first batch. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, no, actually, it was all right. But uh, it was a yeah. I did it in a, a pot on the stove. It was a brown ale out of a dried malt extract kit. Actually, it was liquid extract. You open it like a can of juicy juice or whatever. It was a brown ale. It probably, if I had it now, I would know a million things that were wrong with it. But my friends said it was good. And man, isn't that the the story with homebrewing? Like, especially <laughs> yeah. you have a bunch of cheerleaders going. It's great. So your first one, Levi, you made what? My first one I tried was a stout, which was mildly successful in that uh, I did drink at least half of it before I gave up on drinking it. It was, <laughs> I mean, it was pretty bad. I always tell home brewers that if they're going to do this for the first time, brew a stout because the flavors are so big. If you make a bunch of mistakes, typically you can at least still drink it. I'm sure. <laughs> That's what I'm like, man, I wonder I wonder what my perspective now would be. As yeah, how I'm, bad was it really? Like, as if, if I'm judgmental of, of commercial beers, how bad was that thing I made on the stove and fermented under a Danzig t-shirt, you know? Like, <laughs> how about when you blow up a fermenter in mama's closet? I had a cider blow off. Uh, I was fermenting it in an un... Not even AC room. It was at the time. It was our laundry room. So Danielle had uh, clean shirts hanging up to dry, and the airlock blew off all over our clean laundry. <laughs> so I was doghouse for a minute. <laughs> yeah, we, like we've all had that, or that uneasy smell when you walk down in your basement, and, and you're, you're like, like oh, oh uh, I smell beer. Yeah, oh, oh no. no. <laughs> so do you craft brewing aficionados always denigrate commercial beers? No. no, I think uh, I think a lot of us have a lot of respect for them and their consistency and their execution. Name a commercial beer you don't denigrate. Schlitz. Ah, really? <laughs> yeah, I like drinking Schlitz. Yeah. How about Pabst? Yeah, Pabst. Pabst. Miller High Life. That's one of my uh, one, one, one of the ones I've drank a lot. I like Coors. I mean, Coors Banquet beer. Yeah, yeah. Coors Banquet. Heck yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I think it's like nobody's like really denigrating the the macros per se. It's like you respect them for what they do, for what they are, and the fact that that is the beer sometimes people want. Like sometimes in some situations, that's just what someone wants. And I think that wave has kind of come and gone. I know when I first came on, it was all about, oh, boo, big beer. And and when it comes to the beer itself, I think that's kind of dipped and come back. We're like, hey, look, you want a Coors while you're mowing the grass, you know, drink what you want to drink. And and I think a lot of us are now more, if you want to drink a beer, drink a beer. Yeah, please just drink beer. Just yeah. drink beer, you know. Yeah. Uh, you've actually said you wanted to start the Beer Nerds Brewery. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so at the time when we got started in the marketplace, it didn't really feel like um, anybody was really going after the more esoteric and um, nuanced beers that, that kind of geek-oriented places were selling. And so that's where we thought I thought we could fit in. At the time, it was things like sour beer, beers that were made with fruit or herbs or spices or a, a triple IPA that was, you know, off the charts. Something that wasn't an amber ale, a stout, you know, a like porter. crazy porter or whatever. Just it was what was in, on the market at that time was plain. For, for as far as I'm concerned, you're playing lager, you're playing IPA, whatever, and that's what people are buying, and I get it. That's how the business runs. I mean, to this day, those things still sell well. Sure. But if you're new and trying to get in, get a niche in a market, are you going to go up against these other guys with their IPAs and lagers, or are you going to go, where do I fit? I think that's what 
where Hunter made Champion fit in a really cool way. It's small. It's beers that those guys don't make. And in the beginning, what's even cooler is you have to make your way here to the pub because we don't offer anything in a can yet. I guess nobody was making locally the beers that I was buying. And in my mind, at as however pedestrian it was, I thought, well, if nobody's making the beer that I'm buying, if I made it, then I'd you know, like be buying it, man. Like, <laughs> and so would other people, right? Uh, so it was harebrained at the time, but it turned out to work. You're known for making beers that aren't the ordinary IPAs and stouts, as you were saying. What are some of the weirder recipes, weirder beers that you've created? Man, we've done a lot of stuff, yeah. you know? I mean, a lot of stuff with fruit, especially like that Rattler last year. Yeah, that was that was wild. I mean, we you know, a commercial Rattler is basically a vat of soda blended in with a vat of lager beer. You know, we bought wholesale boxes and boxes of grapefruits and lemons and zested them and juiced them and used a friend's restaurant to cook down the simple syrup and made soda and beer all at the same time. And it sold super fast. Gangbusters. Yeah, yeah. it was crazy. I bet women loved it. I think so. I think everybody I think loved everybody it. loved it, yeah. It's just like grapefruit juice, but alcoholic. That's, that's <laughs> something that comes up a lot, like, like, well, girls like this or girls like that. I see beers that you would think would be maybe not everybody's forte. I see everybody drinking them. I don't think there's such like, thing as a man's beer. Or that's what I mean. Anymore. It's like yeah. you think, all right, well, this is a really big, thick, heavy beer, and that's typically not stereotypically the woman's beer, but they come right up and drink it too. Everybody does it. So some of the other crazy ingredients you've used, even clams? We did. We made uh, we made clam bake, which was, uh, we have a great re- relationship with Rappahannock River Oysters, and they have amazing, super salty, old salt clams. So I had the idea to make a goza, which is a traditional German beer um, that's made with salt. Uh, my thought was to actually have the salt constituent made by the liquor, the seawater that's still in the clams. I mean, a lot of people are taken aback by the description. Then you have it, you're like, oh, it's just an awesome weed beer. I'm like, yeah, try it out. There's another one with sea salt, paprika, and ham bones. Yeah, that was one we made in collaboration with uh, Mas Tapas, which is a, a Spanish tapas joint here in town. So we actually boiled the uh, the bones of a hemoniberico ham uh, along with the... Um, two seasonings the restaurant's known for, which is the smoked gray sea salt and the smoked uh, paprika, the pimenton. Uh, and it was wild. It, it tasted kind of like a pork chop uh, as, <laughs> as a beer on its own. But then when you had the beer with the food that it was intended to be paired with, it actually became a really easy drinking, almost like a white ale. Are craft beers more alcoholic than commercial beers as a rule? Not as a rule, but typically. I'd say I mean, more often than not. Yeah, yeah by, by volume. If, if IPA is the number one style, it's anywhere from at least 6% to as, as high as 8 So, yeah, you know, compared to your 3.5% light beer that's in the market. Sure. Absolutely. And why is that? Why aren't the market beers more alcoholic? Don't people prefer that? Uh, no, that's the uh, lowest common denominator was the approach, was how can we make sure everybody drinks this, everybody expects the same thing. And then the light beer thing came out of the diet fad of the 80s, exactly. where everything had to be diet this, diet that. And so without calling it Diet Miller, it became Miller Light. Absolutely. So um, unfortunately for folks like Levi and myself, <laughs> the, high alcohol, <laughs> the higher alcohol beers are your higher calorie beers. Going to have to cut my calories elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Time for shower beer. Shower as in take a bath? Yeah, like yeah. the beer you have in the shower. Shower beer is a popular euphemism uh, for a beer you take in the shower. Because at least for me, I know for Levi, we yeah. both have young kids. And, you know, either you have time for a shower or you have time for a beer. So you have time for a shower That's beer. for sure. A lot of times, like if you're going to go out tonight, right, and you come home and you're going to get cleaned up and ready or whatever, you grab a beer on the way in from the, you know, in the kitchen and get your shower and drink a beer while you're doing, getting ready, you know. When you were getting into brewing, what did you notice about the culture of beer and breweries in other parts of the country? Uh, super popular on the West Coast. Uh, the proliferation of breweries is all over the place. They're, you know, down the street, there's one, and here's another one, and they're, they've got this this awesome culture that we're just now starting to scratch, just breweries on every block with a you know, rotating food truck or band or DJ every weekend. And I was just blown away by trips to, particularly to San Francisco and Denver, where it's just happening, it's part of the inherent culture, and here we're we're just getting on board with it. All movements start in California, right? Eh? Not all, no, <laughs> certainly not. 
<laughs> some do. <laughs> well, some of them, you know, a lot of them ended there, but I think, um, <laughs> but the idea of, man, this guy makes the beer down the street and I see him and his wife walking the dog in the neighborhood. You know, it's the yeah. same way you buy bread from your local baker. You know, you bank locally, you eat locally. And so it was, that was a huge part of it is, you know, this Guinness has been on a freight container or this was brewed two weeks ago. You know, tough yeah. call. There's a nationalism aspect to it too. I mean, you want you want beer that's brewed in America, and so I do. Yeah, <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of you know commercial beers are, but I know a lot of people that were on the fringe who were drinking import beers because they really like the taste or um, whatever it is. It's the nuance of drinking import beers. Maybe they're more flavorful or cooler, or they have a more interesting story. It's it's a step. Hunter Smith and Levi Duncan teach craft brewing at Piedmont Virginia Community College, and they brew beers of all kinds at Champion Brewing Company. Up next, brewing beer 18th century style. These days, students at William & Mary go off campus to drink, But in the colonial era, the college brew pub took care of their beer needs. Lilia Fukin has this report. This is Chowning's Tavern, an authentic 18th century alehouse just a half mile down the road from William & Mary, a college that, in those days, preferred that the students drank beer on campus. Uh, Students there um, actually are not supposed to be going to taverns like this one. That's Frank Clark, the master of historic foodways at Colonial Williamsburg. And he says that colleges had to have their own brew houses. One of the reasons why they build brew houses in schools like William & Mary is that uh, we don't want the kids out in in town and and taverns with everybody else. Bad influence on, on these young scholars. Students who drank in town were likely to get too drunk, says Susan Kern, the executive director of the historic campus at William & Mary. So, and there are, there are college accounts of the boys getting out of hand, uh, you know, and there are, there are <laughs> accounts of boys being brought before the schoolmasters because they are drunk in town after curfew. Students went to town taverns because there, they could drink hard liquor. Back at the campus dining hall, the booze was pretty weak. The school rules say that they may serve beer, cider, and spirits mixed with water, but they can't have hard liquor at the table. So they can't have brandy or rum, but they're getting beer. The school needed to be able to serve a beer that was what they considered healthy. It's part of the regular ration. It's um, more important than water um, and a replacement for water when water's unsafe. So, Clark explains, they built their own brew house. You have a little more control over it. You know exactly how strong it's going to be, and and therefore you can make it weaker if you want to, which might be important for that. A lot of the beer that are imported over are intentionally strengthened in order to survive the sea journey. Uh, They'll put more hops in the beer, they'll put more alcohol in the beer, and, and they'll try and build it up. 300 years ago, schools were making their own custom homebrews. And a pint back then probably had a much more complex flavor than your average beer today. The 18th century beers were were somewhat sour because they don't have the ability to sterilize things and put them in stainless steel like we do. Uh, So uh, they didn't have single strains of yeast yet in the period. So I think that uh, a lot of their beers were a little on the funkier side. Now that sour beers have become more popular in the the brewing world, we'd like to do a a line that, that involves some of the strange and interesting beers of the 18th century, some of the sour beers and things like that. So next time you're in Colonial Williamsburg, you might be able to taste one of those funkier beers. For With Good Reason, I'm Lilia Fukin. Now we turn from beer at an old college to food at a new college. The Kitchens at Reynolds is a new initiative by J. Sargent Reynolds Community College. They're bringing cutting-edge culinary arts training to an underserved neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. Paula Pando is president of Reynolds Community College. She joins us along with Chef Jesse Miller, who is an instructor in the new teaching kitchen. Tell me something about the neighborhood and the challenges people face where Kitchen at Reynolds is going. This particular area in uh, the city of Richmond has a life expectancy rate of 20 years less than just one mile away. 
concentrated poverty, generational poverty. And so there's a great deal of work to do in helping to provide greater access to a higher education uh, and to social and economic mobility. The other interesting thing is Richmond is really a happening, happening hot food scene, culinary scene. And the kitchens at Reynolds will really help power that industry even more uh, by helping train mid-level chefs, people who want to open a catering business, people who want to work in the hospitality industry. A lot of times we think of these suburban, low-income areas as food deserts where people don't have all the options they need for simple, healthy produce and meals. Do you think that your new endeavor, Kitchens at Reynolds, will help that situation at all in this area? Well, we do have a a brand new marketplace that is part of the solution for that. So we have a health hub that we're partnering with so that our communities feel comfortable coming in and getting something of value, even if they're not a student. So for example, uh, having a chef in our uh, demonstration kitchen, beautiful demonstration kitchen that we have, 72-seat stadium style, to be able to show folks how to cook food that's delicious and maybe using a little less salt, maybe using alternate ingredients so that we're part of the conversation, but we can't be the answer to all of it. So we expect to see students from all walks of life that love to cook and want to turn the thing that they love to do into possibly a profession. I read that you're even going to be holding an Iron Chef competition for the young people. Yeah, that's very popular, and they don't recognize that those chefs on TV are 1% of 1% of 1%. And so we're trying to teach them how to sustain their careers with growing them, but that there's a lot of staple practices that we can teach and help assist them to start making those uh, dreams come true. Do you partner with the restaurant industry to sort of create a job market that serves the food habits and tastes of this younger crowd? I'm not sure if it's the, you know, which comes first. Did this new young crowd arrive and kind of the demand for occurred or this culinary scene emerged and young people decided they wanted to move to Richmond or the region? You know, when I came in 2009 to Richmond, you didn't really talk about the food. There was a few select restaurants that were really good and then there was a bunch that were good and then there's everybody else like every other city or town. We started attracting more chefs, and these chefs were younger, more creative. I'm going to try this, and we're going to see if it works out kind of attitude as opposed to, well, I know this rocks and this rolls, so this is what we're going to stick with. And then the millennials aged into money. They don't really buy houses and cars as early and get married as soon and kids. So they have expendable income where they are enjoying time with their life, with their friends, their families. Why do you have to leave Richmond to go find a really nice high-quality restaurant or a steak or you know, some Southern fusion sushi dish with, you know, frog. You know, Richmond is a big, big college town uh, with Virginia Commonwealth University and the University of Richmond and Reynolds Community College and Virginia Union University and Virginia State. I mean, it is a college region um, that brings people from all over um, the country, really. And so the tastes, uh, when I moved here from New Jersey, I thought that I would have to say goodbye to my favorite cuisine, which is Indian. It's my favorite food, always has been. And to find this vibrant Indian community here uh, in Richmond, and that community is reflected in the restaurant scene. It's just a really amazing place where uh, people from all over the country have decided that Richmond is the place to be. You're teaching culinary skills to a generation that is a generation or two away from the farmers that once grew and processed all this. We actually talk about that in class being uh, two generations plus now removed from when Growing food was the only way that you had food and trading and bartering, and students don't understand that, so we have to explain to them how that worked. And then when we can, we bring in whole plants or whole products as opposed to the leaves of something so that they can see how it actually grows. One of the the great things about the design of the kitchens is that you can see everything that's going on from the outside. So pedestrian traffic, people driving by, they'll be able to see through clear glass 
our students at work. There's no mystery about who's in there, what's going on. They'll be able to see people who look like them, people who might be from their neighborhood, people uh, in chef coats preparing and doing what they love. I mean, we're this big modern building coming uh, uh, out of the ground in an area that's very kind of historic. The, the homes are quite historic looking. So, um, so it was important that we have clear glass so everyone can see what's going on in there and hopefully be encouraged or inspired to at least take a step inside and see if there might be something of interest there for you. Uh, when I first came on board uh, at the college, I shared how wonderful it is that through um, the kitchens at Reynolds, we'll be able to help power this thriving economy that is the food economy of Richmond. But my bigger interest was that the people who power this industry will also be able to afford to eat out every once in a while. I recall, I mean, he's a celebrity, but more than celebrity, celebrated chef, Eric Repair, who has Lilla Bernardin in New York, a very high-end, famous French restaurant. And he doesn't care where you came from. You might have your master's degree from Johnson & Wales, but you work the entire line. You must work the line. Those who are prepared get through that line far more quickly than someone who's never had any formal instruction. So we expect that students will have to learn all aspects of the business before getting up to those higher posts. But by preparing them well, they'll be able to move up far more quickly uh, than someone who's had no formal education. Have Richmond restaurant owners and managers been salivating over the kinds of kids you're going to be turning out each year? Yes. Um, we are producing more faster. A lot of our students today don't have any industry experience, so we're able to get them into places sooner. And the businesses are looking for entry-level, not just mid-level associates, people that are uh, ready to learn how to do prep and uh, mise en place, which is to get everything in its place to make sure you can be as successful as an, and as efficient as you can in a dish. We have lots of businesses calling. They want to come on campus. They're hiring our students. We have projects that require the students to go out into the industry and break that ice, even though it's uncomfortable, because the chef's like, no, I'm not just going to let you sit there and observe. You're going to get involved and see if this is really what you want to do. And that's what we want to do. And for me, it doesn't matter if you graduate culinary. My goal is to get you in whatever program it's supposed to be. And culinary was a gateway to get you to school. Fine. We're going to get you where you want to go so you can improve your life, which is why you came to school in the first place. Jesse Miller is a professor of culinary arts and hospitality at Reynolds Community College. Paula Pando is president of the college. Their new program to bring culinary arts to the east end of Richmond is called The Kitchens at Reynolds. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, Jamal Milner, and Aidan Carroll. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.